keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. America, yes, founded July 4th, 1776. It was a declaration of independence. We were independent from Britain, independent from rule by foreign aristocrats by a government that uh, had owed all its allegiance to the wealthy and powerful. We didn't want that. We wanted a government of, by, and for the people. Well, how true is that? How independent are we? What does independence mean, after all? Today, our guest is Richard Esco. Richard, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Richard Esco has written an article about this in the Huffington Post, where he's a regular columnist. He is also an affiliate scholar of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Richard had senior executive positions at several Fortune 500 companies and was CEO of two medical management companies before forming Health Knowledge Systems. He also served as senior consultant to the World Bank the U.S. State Department, USAID, and government and private entities in over 20 foreign countries. And as I said, he's a columnist for the Huffington Post. Well, we just celebrated the 4th of July. What, what was the nature of independence then? What is it now? Is it the same? Are we missing the boat on what the real nature of independence is? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think the answer to that is yes, that Independence, as the founding fathers and unfortunately too few mothers of this country yes. defined it, it was and is the right to shape your own destiny and to have a level of economic security that guarantees health and happiness, or at least the basic uh, ability to pursue those things. That's independence. And uh, when you think about it, the United States War for Independence, in a way, was a rebellion against the first multinationals. The East India Company in in England and uh, the Dutch uh, East Indies Company, these were the powerful, uh, undemocratic corporations of their day, and our revolution was triggered, among other things, by the fact that uh, there was no representation or democratic way to object to what they were doing and to restrict their behavior, but instead they controlled the political process and they controlled individual liberty to a level that uh, people in uh, 1776 found unacceptable. So while we have people calling themselves the Tea Party right now and running around 
talking about liberty, they're actually taking the opposite side of that battle, whether they realize it or not. Uh, we're the real fight for independence is the fight for uh, freedom and individuality, and uh, not to be ripped off by uh, large corporations. And we we don't seem to have come, maybe not any distance at all. Now the people of what was then the colonies had some distance between us. There was a physical separation of us versus them, and that certainly made it convenient to uh, to rebel. Uh, but I wonder what options they had back then. I mean, taking up arms, you know, the shedding of blood, thrusting lead into the flesh of other human beings is, you know, not a choice you want to make very easily. I wonder what other options they had and why people were so upset. I mean, here we are in these currently United States living with a kind of aristocracy and a government that wasn't, that isn't too dissimilar from the government that was had in 1776 that, that the Americans rebelled against. They must have tried other things. And, you know, it's, I find it frustrating now that we feel powerless we feel absolutely powerless to make any changes, and it seems that the the Wall Street bankers, the the corporate Tories of the 21st century, are, are they basically own the government, and we feel powerless. I wonder, uh, Richard Esco, how people felt back then. Any indication did they feel powerless, or did they have a sense uh, that they did have power to do something about it? And is that a big difference? I wonder if you could talk to that. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in New York City, where I used to live, and walking around Lower Manhattan, and that morning I'd happened to read the first chapter of Newt Gingrich's book, which, uh, for a historian, certainly, and no doubt intentionally, misstates the history of that time. But um, he's writing about the Revolutionary War, that the people were united in their rejection of the British oppression. Actually, from what we know... Uh, and from what I've read, it was about, it, toward the end, it was about a third of the people supported uh, the revolution, about a third of the people leaned British, and the rest of them, they were just going about their lives. And and in a way, for them, yes, first of all, in terms of your first question, yes, they did try boycotts and things of that nature. And in that sense, there's a little bit of parallel with Gandhi and Indian independence. They tried boycotts. Those were not considered legal or acceptable. And um, if you think things are different now, try boycotting the companies that hold your mortgage. So... Um, <laughs> Yes, they did try other means, but in terms of going a violent route, obviously none of us wants that or proposes that, but in terms of actually declaring independence, it was simpler for them back then because they did have a geographically distant party to deal with. Now, when this all started, they all considered themselves good Englishmen. There was no question about that. But, But they did have the advantage of distance and that sense of otherness and separation of identity, remembering that these, you know, this revolution was mostly led by fairly wealthy elite people themselves. So this was not an uprising of the masses. This was, uh, at least originally, uh, this was an economic dispute, but they were very much aware that they could declare an independent nation, a sovereign nation, and they had the separate land to prove it. We don't have that today. 
So we need other means of um, trying to identify uh, who and what we're resisting and what the right means are for doing that. And there are plenty of tools at our disposal uh, mm. in terms of law and in terms of economic power of people to direct their money or not direct their money uh, where they choose, including the Move Your Money campaign for banks and so we have a lot of tools in our uh, chest, but we don't have yet a kind of framing narrative that helps people understand that we're really fighting a kind of corporate system that has embedded itself so deeply in our politics and our media that uh, it's hard to identify what the struggle even is. And that's the work of our generation, I think. Wow, that is not easy to do. Our generation, meaning, I guess, the, the people who are around now. And, you know, I, I just wonder, we're talking about independence and what that means, what dependence means, how it, it can be defined now and how it was defined then. It's a very powerful word, independence. People, as you say, uh, like Newt Gingrich and other people on the extreme right these days, which uh, is calling itself the Republican Party, uh, talk about uh, going back to a sense of rugged individualism, this myth, this 19th century myth, and maybe earlier myth, that uh, there could be, uh, you know, everybody for themselves and not being connected with other people. That is certainly not what was meant by independence, by the, the founders of this, uh, this country now. And I, I wonder how they defined dependence. Was it very clear to them? Was it more clear back in the 18th century what dependence and independence was than it is today, Richard? What do you think? Well, sure. I, I think in many ways it was, and I think there are a couple reasons for it. One is you had a geographically remote uh, center of power, right, that which made it made, uh, was kind of a visual symbol of sure. uh, what was going on. And then you had the East India Company and these uh, legally mandated requirements to buy from certain, you know, institutions at certain times. And, uh, and we've had 200 years of evolution of the narrative of why dependence isn't really dependence. We've had think tanks and, uh, and advertising agencies and uh, billionaire-funded political campaigns designed to persuade us that what we all once recognized as either dependence or subservience to corporations that have too much power is really a funny form of freedom. And that's been, you know, that's been remarkably successful. We have people, you know, the Tea Party itself, as you know, I'm sure, but a lot of people don't know, the current Tea Party movement was began on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange when a former hedge fund trader named Rick Santelli, who who's a bloviator for CNBC, went on the floor of the Mercantile Exchange and said, "Hey, there's talk that uh, that they might help these underwater homeowners and all the uh, all the guys on the exchange who had just been bailed out by the government. Their whole industry had just been bailed out." started screaming, losers, losers, don't help them. And um, he said, yeah, why don't we start a Tea Party movement right here to say we don't bail out the losers. And these are bankers and hedge fund people and, and speculators saying that 
somebody who bought their house because everybody reassured them it would only go up in value is a loser and should be abandoned, or somebody who's being foreclosed with uh, illegal, fraudulent paperwork is a loser and should be abandoned. That's the origin of what today is being called the Tea Party movement, and um, that's how effective all this uh, expensive, uh, persuasive technology has been at convincing people that... uh, that kind of Orwellian uh, reality <laughs> where where subservience is freedom. Right. <laughs> Work shall make you free, something like that. But <laughs> <laughs> we are talking with uh, Richard Esco, columnist for Huffington Post, about the nature of independence and dependence. I did not know that about the founding of the, the current Tea Party. That That is fascinating. I am reminded... I don't know when it was exactly, but I back. I think it may have been around the 60s when there was this sort of revolutionary spirit going around then in opposition to the war in Vietnam and to uh, uh, you know the lack of uh, power to the people. Uh, there was an advertising campaign, I believe, by Tide, Tide Detergent, a revolution in cleaning power. You know, and <laughs> well, yes, and that's why the late uh, Gil Scott Heron, God rest his soul, yes, uh, used so many of those ad slogans in the revolution will not be televised because in this country, revolution has become a sort of uh, a marketing tool, a mark, absolutely a marketing tool, um, and I believe that was the same ad campaign that referred to their product as a white tornado, which didn't escape Gil Scott Heron's attention either. <laughs> but uh, um, the, uh, yeah, the idea of revolution as, um, as a fashion statement. Look, the left, we, you know, we were guilty of that in those days, too. How many people had a Che Guevara poster on their wall, and how many of them would have had Che on the wall if he didn't look like a rock and roll star? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, the marketing of revolution, now we're seeing its fruits in the right wing, and Michelle Bachman saying, I want the people of Minnesota armed and dangerous, right. and Sarah Palin saying, uh, don't retreat, reload, right. and um, all the other violent rhetoric. I, I, I was in the gym, and I saw they had the Glenn Beck on, and um, oh boy. Uh, I saw Glenn Beck and Pendulette, the comedian, the magician yes. comedian, talking about how they were really revolutionaries who were prepared to march and fight for freedom, if I thought. And I thought, you know, you two guys are going to have to do a little more working out, um, maybe maybe some dietary changes before you go into the mountains. But um, but that's that's the you know they're glamorizing it, they're marketing it, and uh, unfortunately, part of that is the violent rhetoric, yeah. and it's being used to market uh, the exact opposite of revolution. It's interesting how how the words revolution can can be marketed. It's a, it's a feeling that people have. People all across these United States are angry. They are angry, but it's a diffuse, undirected anger. And and people like uh, Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman are, are very successfully picking up on that. The Democratic Party certainly isn't uh, uh, branding itself in, in opposition to any uh, power structure and is not uh, uh, channeling any of that anger. And it does seem that, that the big money power is is manipulating the language, and the language is so important. They're talking about revolution and independence. And I, I, I wonder, you know, we feel, a lot of people feel like, well, we do have freedom. We do have independence. 
Look, when we go into a grocery store, look at all those choices we have. We can buy all kinds of cars. We can buy different kinds of washing machines. We have total freedom. People, I think, have uh, translated freedom from what it meant, which included responsibility, that odd notion called citizenship, where it's a responsibility to participate in government. Now freedom and independence seems to be uh, down to consumerism. Do we mistake choices in the supermarket for freedom? Ever since the Second World War, that's been the strategy. And during the uh, presidential campaign in 2008, I went back and read an essay I hadn't read since I was a teenager, Norman Mailer on JFK, Superman at the Supermarket, Hmm. which uh, dealt with all of this and talked about the you know, the marketing of vibrancy and how if you walk into a supermarket now, it's a temple of cleanliness and light and splendor and choice of products. And a couple things uh, struck me about that and of how far we'd come. One is that, you know, most of the supermarkets I go to now are actually kind of depressing and underlit. And, you know, there's a sort of fraying around the edges of this whole consumer empire but we still believe that, and, and and there are still. I mean, the Ralphs down the street is, is pretty impressive. But when we could even get into Whole Foods and the kind of marketing of alternative nice lifestyles, too. But, but, you know, what we're really talking about is distraction. Distraction from the issues at hand and distraction. You know, I think one of the most brilliant, whether intentionally or not, if I were sitting down 40 years ago and saying, how do we preserve and expand our control over people's lives and the economy, I or no one could have thought of anything more brilliant than reality TV and celebrity TV shows. And that's why when John Edwards started to do his Two Americas angle and his campaign, I knew it wouldn't work because everybody who lives in that one America of need and economic insecurity They're watching TV, and in their minds, in their dreams, they're living in that other America of wealth and celebrity and security. What a brilliant way to keep people from changing the economic reality they deal with by convincing them that they're just a fluke of history away from being the next Snooky or the next, you know, so you want to be a millionaire or... or, uh, uh, America's top idol or whatever. What a brilliant way to say, no, no, your time is coming. Wow, that is interesting because I, I really I, I had a hard time with the messenger, John Edwards, but the message I thought was a really good one. I've, I've long thought that the populist message that it is us against them, that, that we, the people, really don't have the real political power, that it's the you know wealthy aristocracy, the corporate Tories, uh, it didn't connect. And I've, it's been bothering a lot of people why that message, the two Americas, which is true, doesn't connect. The fact that there's no uh, class sense here, as there is uh, throughout Europe, uh, people feel like, yeah, that's that's the next me. It's just, as you say, a fluke away from, from being wealthy. What a brilliant way to keep people from recognizing that they can do something, that they, they are, well, economically uh, kind of oppressed, really. And I wonder how, you know... Was it that much clearer at the time of the 1776 uh, revolution that people were oppressed, that there was an aristocracy running the show, 
or was it not so clear? Because frankly, the revolution, the war of independence, really only took off when the wealthiest people said, hey, we can get more of our share of the loot by separating from Mother England. <laughs> you know, would that have happened? Would the War of Independence happen without the wealthiest classes participating in it and, and making it, uh, kind of shaping it and twisting it much as uh, the uh, the corporate media does now? Well, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I think the lessons there uh, of the uh, War for Independence, I, I think there are a couple. One is they were smart about the power of symbolism. The Boston Tea Party, as opposed to the Chicago Mercantile Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party was a brilliant piece of political theater. It really kind of crystallized, you know, we have to buy this tea, we can't, we have plantations, we can't even grow our, you know, we have to send it back there and then buy it back from them. That was like Gandhi marching to the ocean to make salt. I mean, that was a very brilliant, making it concrete. The problem with two Americas isn't that it isn't true. Sure, it's true. There are probably more than two, but there are at least two. Um, The problem is it's abstract. So the symbolism of the Tea Party, the original Uh Tea Party, is make it concrete. And that's one. And I would say the lesson of getting all these, uh, you know, God forgive us for our original sin, plantation owners and other wealthy people to promote and back this revolution is find allies. And, you know, it's okay to find allies. We, we live in a, a country now where the giant banks and the giant corporations and the ultra-wealthy aren't just ripping off and exploiting you and me and the middle class and lower-income people. They're ripping off and exploiting moderately wealthy people and moderately success, uh, successful people. And the businesses, for example, I'm in, you know, the, the short version of my bio is, you know, escapee from the corporate matrix. The short, you know, the business, the, the segment of business that creates jobs that really needs to be unchained from what's going on now, those are the businesses that have from two to five to 500 employees. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that hire people that actually do things create jobs, uh, you know, get the economy going, they're being stifled and suppressed by economic policies that favor the banks, and particularly the biggest banks, to the detriment even of community banks. So we have uh, a government and a policy system that's dominated by the mega banks. We have uh, government and uh, uh, capital that's dominated by the mega corporations who are shipping jobs overseas and squeezing out these moderate and smaller companies. Maybe our version of the, uh, you know, George Washington's and Thomas Jefferson's who have their estates are the people who own and develop these companies because they're the ones who can't get credit right now because the Federal Reserve has eased money for the banks who then turn around and just uh, make money off it rather than recirculating it by lending. So, you know, and so on and so on. But I think the idea is the lessons of the American Revolution are twofold. One is be more concrete, and, mm-hmm. um, and the other is find the allies who have at least enough resource and leverage uh, to work with us to change things. We are talking on the Burt Cohen Show with uh, Richard Esco who uh, is a self-described escapee from the corporate world and is also a columnist for the Huffington Post about the nature of independence. 
And I think you bring up some very interesting points about uh, making it concrete. It's very hard to see uh, complicated issues. And the media these days, with everybody uh, having their handheld little devices, I'm not there yet, but uh, very, very short attention spans. And it's been that way for a long, long time. And perhaps in the 18th century, maybe people could have more time to read and to understand. Uh, And there was certainly a power structure then. It was easy to say, we're here on this side of the Atlantic, they're they, the bad guys, the wealthy and powerful, are on the other side. So the wealthy and powerful on this side of the Atlantic kind of maybe used the symbols of, as you mentioned, the Boston Tea Party. It's very difficult to to tell a story so that people can understand it. And f- people do feel powerless now. As I say, they're angry. There is the uh, effectively communicated message of of the radical right these days calling itself the Republican Party but the Democrats just it it, we don't have it I still certainly consider myself a Democrat from what Wellstone called the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party I wonder what what can be done or is it I hope it's not beyond hope and, and and to to talk about what kind of Symbolism. I mean, the, the, I was talking earlier today about uh, it was on this date that the, the Yippies were formed in 1968. Abby Hoffman was a brilliant public relations strategist who understood how to communicate a message without using a lot of words, like throwing money down on the right. tr- trading floor of Wall Street and, and, and taking the, the hands off the clock at Grand Central Station. Now, everybody was enslaved to that particular clock and then nominating a pig for president in 1968. Those were pictures that, that you know, said more than a thousand words. I wonder how that can be done now. And, you know, it's not like people in, well, maybe people in the, in the 18th century were more educated and had a possibility of understanding, hey, the, the, the oligarchs are oppressing us, the financial oligarchs. And now, you know, the Tea Party, what, what calls itself the Tea Party, is saying, well, government's the bad guy. The corporations, they're, they're on your side. How could it, are there ways that we could more effectively communicate that, no, it's not the government. They are just the handmaidens of the financial oligarchs of today. I wonder if it can be communicated and if people would know what the heck to do if it were more black and white. Well, you know, I think that the answer is yes and yes. First of all, you know, I think you and I differ slightly in that in my heart I am no longer a Democrat, I don't think. I mean, I I am registered Democrat, I vote in the primaries, I support good Democrats, but I think that one of the plagues that plagues us now is that too many people are waiting, and I, I don't include you in this, but too many people are expecting either that the Democratic Party will lead us or that a Democratic Party uh, victory is all they need to worry about. Um, I think that large segments of the Democratic Party, by no means all of it, large segments of it have been taken over by the the corporatist party. And so I think that, for me, part of the Declaration of Independence is, you know what, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm a guy who believes in principles A, B, and C, passionately and want to fight to see them enacted and the democratic party is one of many tools to get that done 
And so I think that's part of, for me, that's part of it. The other is, look, you know, uh, the t- today's Tea Party movement is filling a vacuum, and we knew it was yes. a vacuum. You know, back in April of 2009, and, and, and I'm not, you know, claiming unusual prescience for myself, but in April of 2009, I posted a, a, a song that had been written by um, by John um, Rich, who is part of the country music uh duo called Big and Rich that have been incredibly popular, and John Rich was also John McCain's campaign troubadour, quote-unquote, and wrote a theme, a campaign song that was god-awful, called Raising McCain. It was as bad as the title. But John Rich also wrote a terrific song about the economy called Shutting Detroit Down, and he made a terrific video, and he got Chris Christopherson, who's the leftiest of the left in country music, to act in it, and he got Mickey Rourke to act in it, and it was about an auto worker being laid off, and the whole theme of the song is, you know, in Washington and D.C., or New York, they're living high, you know, they're living on the town, and, uh, you know, my boss just took his big bonus and got on his jet plane and got out of town, but here in the real world, they're shutting Detroit down. And, you know, back then, you know, I mean, my reaction was, if a Democrat, if Obama and the Democrats don't get on, this emotion and this feeling, watch the video if you can, Shut in Detroit Down by John Rich with Chris Christopherson. It is the perfect four-minute encapsulation of all the emotions everybody has been feeling about the wealthy guys making off with the loot and mm-hmm. the good guy who just shows up and does his job every day getting the shaft. And that's to me, is the kind of the spine of what needs to be taken back. But uh, since Obama and the Democrats, most Democrats didn't want to do it, and of course there right. are terrific Democrats out there, but since so many yeah. didn't, uh, the Republicans, with their marketing savvy, uh, you know, the Dick Armies and so on, yeah. saw a consumer need, if you will, and they met it. And, um, and they've won so far. They've taken it over. I mean, last quick anecdote... I spoke at a demonstration outside the, dem- uh, the Treasury Department um, telling um, Geithner to ha- give back the money that was given to AIG through Goldman Sachs. And I worked for AIG for many years. So I spoke and I used the, the F word and had to apologize. I'm a fellow at the Campaign for America's Future. I apologize because it got on the net. They, they just laughed. But anyway, uh, I talked about all of this. And at the end, a young woman came up to me who wrote for Red State or one of the far-right Mm-hmm. And she said, there's nothing you said in that speech. And it was a, you know, a heated speech. There's nothing you said in that speech that couldn't have been said at a Tea Party rally. And hmm. my answer to that was, invite me. And? Invite me. And? I mean, <laughs> you, you, you <laughs> Did know, they? a lot of those people are racist and terrible people, sure. but a lot of them are also, uh, most of them, I would say, venting a sort of unorganized, frust- inchoate, you know, yes. frustration that we need to challenge. See that uh, channel rather that we need to change. Yes, I I couldn't agree more, and I've been frustrated, as you can imagine, with the the Democratic Party establishment a lot because they almost to a person feel like, oh no, forget trying to appeal to the people who are uh, taken in by the Tea Party. I disagree. There's a populist sense out there, and the populist movement and the history of populism has generally been to the left. Not always, but and it's been manipulated by the right, Lord knows, in the 1930s in Germany and, and other places. 
But people are angry, and the Democrats are not speaking to that anger. And what one thing is is, is the idea of, of commonality, of a common purpose, something called the common good. My understanding of the founders of independence felt that the common good, the public good, uh, the commonwealth was something that was essential to independence. Now, I hear people on the right saying, you know, basically, it's just me on my own. If the government gets involved in protecting and ensuring the common good that that say there's, you know, the bridges are safe to cross, the schools are, are halfway decent, the textbooks are, you know, not all falling apart, you know, and the environment uh, is something that we all share. They say, oh, that's a nanny state. That's been translated to big government, that if we have a government that serves the common good, that's big government, and that's the opposite of independence. Uh, how can we speak to that, Richard? What, what's your reaction to that? How can we, uh, I mean, that, that's a tough one, and they seem to be very strong on that, that, uh, you know, th- that any government support for the common good is like socialism, and that's not the American way. What would the founders think about that? Well, first of all, you know, I think that nannies can be very nice people, but, um, you know, I think that... Uh, it's totally counter to what uh, you know the founders had to say about the common good and common purpose and and about uh, bringing the world's downtrodden and oppressed into the the uh, United States community of citizens. Uh, it's certainly not uh, you know there, there, there's a big difference between um, declaring your independence as a people and and telling people that they're on their own. The, the founders declared their independence as a people and our independence as a people from Britain and from Britain's corporate tentacles, but they did not declare that each and every member of the uh, American community was therefore right. on their own. Right. They were very early, you know, very early in the game, they started doing things like creating uh, the earliest. Um, uh, health insurance kind of programs for uh, sailors or other people who otherwise wouldn't be able to find a doctor and take care of themselves medically. They were interested in the social good, and you know the fact that they didn't do more along those lines says more about the fact that it was a long time ago and people didn't uh, hadn't thought of you know most of our tools for improving the common good yet but they believed in collecting taxes they believed in uh they did they believed in spending money they were for the common good uh, jefferson in the piece you talked about the 4th of July piece uh, jefferson was vehement in his opposition to the big moneyed corporations who are already trying to challenge uh the government's authority he recognized that that was an enormous even an existential threat to democracy. So, mm-hmm. so they definitely stood strong on um, on all of these issues and uh, and believe that we were one people. But I think it's also important to remember in all of this that what gets labeled as progressive or liberal or left wing policy nowadays actually consists of positions that are strongly supported 
all across the political spectrum, including in many cases by most Republicans, most registered Republicans. For example, we're talking now, we're hearing now about a possible deal to cut Social Security. Yes. To protect, uh, so that uh, wealthy people don't have to pay even the teensiest more in taxes. Uh, well, if you look at the polls, most Republicans are against that. Yes. They don't want Social Security cut. And 76% of Tea Party attendees, Tea Party members, don't want to see Social Security cut to balance the deficit, which we're about to see. And if you go into Washington anywhere and say, I'm against cutting Social Security to balance the deficit, people, including reporters for the Washington Post, will say, well, that's the extreme position. (laughs) That's the extreme left position. No, it isn't. It's the Tea Party position. It's the Republican position. It's the independent position. But it gets labeled that way. New new study out yesterday, 80% of voters in swing states, 80% think that the wealthy should be taxed more and more progressively than than any of the Democrats have proposed. They think taxes should start at $150,000 and above, not a million, as was proposed in Minnesota, which shut the government down, not 250,000 as Obama proposed, but then surrendered on. So uh, we're talking about a series of economic positions that are the American position, not the left-wing position, and yet the Democratic Party has failed to articulate the fact that we're speaking for you, Mr. Republican and Ms. Republican. We're speaking for you, Ms. Tea Partier, and come join us. Come help us. Um, and by the way, if you want to see these statistics, the Campaign for America's Future has yeah. a website called American Majority where, all, where you can Google that, and it's all there. But, but that's the piece that's missing here. This is the majority position. What I find so fascinating is that, yes, absolutely it is the majority position. And what power is the government serving? We have this government that was fought for, a lot of people died for, to have you know our independent government, and yet they don't listen to the people. The polls are absolutely clear, overwhelming. They don't want Social Security or Medicare cut, and yet you have... This this language about you know uh, criticizing the nanny state and that the government has spent too much on indulgent uh, human needs that we need to you know be in an age of austerity like in Greece people are against that what interests are driving that discussion and how can it get through it's so frustrating that you know the government is not across the pond in England, it's here. And yet we don't seem, we the people don't seem to have any power over the government in terms of this is what we want. The government seems to be listening to the moneyed interests exclusively. And I found it fascinating. I was listening to uh, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell saying, uh, referring to the extremely wealthy people as the job creators. That's what they're, it's not true. It's really not true. But the government has been hijacked, basically. And we, Democrats and Republicans, left, right, it seems that that we are powerless. And the only uh, uh, channel that seems to be open to speak to that anger is the Tea Party. We we don't have to be in an age of austerity. I mean, Greece, excuse me, the people there recognize that that the the burden is falling, (coughs) sorry, on the the, uh, 
working class far more than it is on the wealthy that cause the problem. I mean, here it wasn't the firefighters and the police and the teachers that cause the spending problems. It's the, the we're bailing out the wealthiest people. How is it that there's so much popular support for what we're talking about, the American position, as you say, Richard, and yet the government just doesn't want to listen to that. 80% of the people feel this way. How can this be changed? What do, what do we need to do? You got any great ideas? Well, I, I wish I did. I mean, I think uh, there, are, there are a couple of things we can't overlook as much as we might want to. And one is the pivotal role that Obama has played in all of this. I mean, I think one of the yes. great tragedies of our time is that someone who was elected out of a, a yearning for genuine change um, and who is so extraordinarily gifted at communicating why change would be needed has chosen instead to um, act very much uh, on on behalf of erratic compromise, uh, maybe some would say more than compromise, yeah. with, with corporate interests. And, and um, to me, frankly, that's tragic in many ways, um, a tragic loss. Um, and I think that anything we do has to be framed around a recognition that, A, yes, he's a lot better than, you know, any uh, Republican alternative would be, but B, he's hurting, not helping this process of articulating what needs to be done. And, uh, you know, it's frustrating because, you'll, you know, I'll watch something like his speech on deficit talks, which began with... 10 minutes of brilliance yeah. on why government has a legitimate role to play uh, in the lives of the American community, and then we'll pivot to advocating for policies and positions that absolutely undercut the rhetoric he just provided. Yeah. So, so I think part of it is, whether it's personal proclivity or mm. compromise with corporate power, whatever you think it is, that he's somebody and and his wing of the Democratic Party is a force we need to contend with. And the way to do that, in my mind, is by declaring psychological independence from him and that wing of the party, too, and saying the pri- one of the primary advantages we have with Obama in the White House versus Mitt Romney is that there are times we can pressure him and back him down. So, for example, uh, it's now it's now yes. being confirmed he was going to announce social security cuts in the State of the Union message. <laughs> People mobilized, flooded the apartment, the uh, White House with with uh, emails and phone calls, and he didn't do it. I, you admit Romney would do it anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, but I think it's a recognition that when it comes to crystallizing all that we're talking about into a movement and an awareness of what needs to be done, he's not going to help, and in many ways he will hurt. And that wing of the Democratic Party won't help, and in many ways they will hurt. So there has to be another way of saying, independent of the party, this is who we are. The strength of the Tea Party is that they defined, the, the today's Tea Party, they've defined themselves as in the Republican Party, but not of it, to paraphrase mm-hmm. the role or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to craft their own image apart from, you know, all those corrupt fat cats and, uh, you know, Jack Abramoff or whomever, Karl Rove. Uh, and yet at the same time, they become a great bad cop so that John Boehner can go into a negotiation and say, hey, gee, Mr. President, I'd love to raise taxes, but my Tea Party guys won't let me do that. So taxes got to be off the table. Mm. And what the, what the left, which is really the 
the center, the American majority needs right. to do is exert that kind of leverage on the Democratic Party and on the president. So the president says, gee, John, I'd love to cut Social Security for you. My people won't let me do it. Such an interesting point, uh, Richard Esco, uh, uh, corporate escapee, uh, columnist for Huffington Post. I am reminded of, and, and clearly Obama is, he, he manipulated, this is very frustrating, I could kind of see it at the time, hope, talking about hope. Of course he couldn't possibly live up to the huge national hope that was put in, but it was kind of, you know, an activist hope. But he is, I mean, he's got Geithner and all these Wall Street insiders who, it's, it's almost doesn't matter what party it is, Wall Street has the power, Wall Street keeps the power. I'm reminded of FDR was uh, uh, obviously a great president, probably one of our greatest, I would say. He, he met with uh, A. Philip Randolph, who was a leader of the, the Pullman workers, the Pullman porters, a black guy, and he wanted uh, uh, A. Philip Randolph wanted to make some changes and get some you know decency and equality for the for the uh, black uh, train workers, and Roosevelt said something like I can't remember exactly, I'm with you, I agree with you, I want to do it now, make me do it, and I think that's what you're talking about that we could we have Obama he had the pressure he felt the pressure, some Democrats say no no don't criticize the president you can't criticize the president. Well, by being on the streets, that's how we make them do it. That's how we make them do it. And a lot of people today seem to define and limit their own political strength, the edge of their uh, political possibility as a choice between two candidates, candidate A and candidate B for president in 2012, that that's the limit of, of their ability to participate in making political change. What's your uh, re response to uh, to that idea and the idea that taking to the streets really can make a difference, especially with a at least theoretically democratic president? Well, I think that yes, yes to all the above. I mean, I'll forewarn you that there are those who say that a Philip Randolph story is apocryphal, but 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 on the deepest level, it's certainly true that even somebody who agrees with you sometimes needs to be forced to do it. That's what the, the Tea Party is doing, is playing the A. Philip Randolph role for the Republicans. True. Somebody needs to fulfill that role for the Democrats. And, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right about, you know, one of the things I've written about in the past is what I've called the XFK phenomenon. What's meaning, that? Meaning... JFK was torn from us too soon. I was 10, but it was a traumatic experience for the country. RFK was torn for us too, too soon. So we're kind of trying sometimes, particularly on the left or the leftish side, to fill that void and heal that trauma by finding the inspirational figure and then trusting him and loving him and following him and relying on him and having that sense of security. And uh, it's almost like being orphaned and trying to heal that mm. wound, you know. But we've got to declare independence from that, too. That's yes. one of my uh, point. points for the 4th of July. No, I mean, in a sense, I, I feel like uh, this is the waiting for a lefty moment. He ain't coming. Let's go. Let's do it ourselves. But that is the way I feel. You know, XFK is not coming. Not in this system. Not in this. And, and I don't demonize Obama because, you know, he's made the assessment that 
he needs the corporate money to survive and function. Right, right. I don't agree. I think it's a miscalculation. I think he'd be more effective and more successful in other ways. But I, I neither demonize him nor idolize him or any other politician. I say to people, to everybody, to myself, over and over, what do you need to do today? What do you need to do this week? What, what needs to happen right now, number one, to defend the social contract that's been in place for 75 years, which they're investing massive resources in dismantling, yes. Social Security, Medicare, uh, aid to families with dependent ch children, Medicaid. What do you need to do to defend, A, and then B, what do you need to do to inspire and envision and imagine the way things could be if they were better than they are now, rather than just not much worse than they are now, which seems to be the holding pattern and the defensive position that the left has gotten into over the last few years. And I'm reminded of uh, the War of Separation, the uh, War of Secession from England, the successful War of Secession, uh, where it was led by the people in the streets. It wasn't until much later in the struggle that the aristocrats, the, the wealthy uh, interest, said, hey, let's get on top of this and, and ride this. You know, they did not lead it. And I think you're absolutely right. For people to limit their sense of political strength to which presidential candidate am I going to support is, is terribly reductive and destructive of, of democracy, that we can, we can do a lot in between now and then. You know, I think getting back to what the founders talked about was citizenship. And the ever-glum Chris Hedges has declared democracy dead. What, what's your reaction to that? How much power do individuals really have? How independent, uh, the independent spirit of, of the people of America, the, the social contract, is democracy dead? Can people really be citizens and participate in self-government uh, at this time? Well, you know, I wrote about a little bit about uh, Chris's piece. I'm a huge admirer of Chris Hedges. Uh, I think he's brilliant and insightful, but I think he's wrong. I, I, I definitely think he's wrong for a couple reasons. One is, if there's one thing that history teaches us, it's that today's impossible is tomorrow's commonplace. Yes. Look, I worked in behind the Iron Curtain for the State Department before the fall of communism and then years in the Soviet bloc countries, helping them create a social insurance system independent of communism. Everybody said that was impossible. That was an astonishing change that nobody dreamed of, and yet it happened. The Arab uprising right. in the Middle East, nobody met all the wisest of the wise heads, the scholars and historians and CIA intelligence analysts, said never happened, never in a million years. Right. That happened. Uh, Indian independence, never happened, never happened. That happened. History is just filled with the impossible happening over and over again. So, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, what William Blake called the mind-forged manacles are the biggest thing holding us back from making huh. greater changes. You know, our belief that we can't do more prevents us from doing more. And I'm sorry if I sound a new agey or over-inspirational, but history teaches this over and over again. So, number, uh, you know, my point to Chris Hedges would be, number one, history refutes you with many, many cases of where seemingly undefeatable uh, oligarchies or power structures have been overthrown, number one. And number two, 
what if you're right? There's a kind of Pascal's wager here. You know, Pascal's wager was uh, if Pascal said, I don't think there's a God, but I'll believe in him any, anyway, just in case. There's a Pascal's wager here. Chris Hedges may be right, but what if he isn't? What if he isn't? What if there's just a 10% chance he isn't? Shouldn't we be fighting with all our energy just in case there's a 10% chance he isn't right? And of course there's a 10% chance he isn't right. I think more than that. We are talking on the Burt Cohen Show with Richard Esco, uh, an affiliate scholar of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, a columnist for Huffington Post, about the spirit of 1776, that uh, democracy isn't dead. Now, you know, it's, it, people get frustrated. I think the message, the the... The sentiment is getting clearer that, hey, you know what? The big corporations have way too much power. The average American doesn't have enough power. But what can we do? They, they own the symbols. You know, they own the—we uh, we feel like we're, we're consumers here. Uh, but what, what can't—we don't know what we can do. I guess it's taken to the streets and writing letters to the editor, the old-fashioned uh, participating in politics and— lobbying, personally lobbying at your state house, uh, getting involved in, in local government as well. And you, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, it, it's just, it's hard to see a clear picture. This is what we do. I mean, it, it's so easy for the, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, prosper- Americans for Prosperity, the people who are running the so-called Tea Party, to say, oh, government's the bad guy. Just overthrow the government. Kick all these Democrats out. Simple, clear, easy to see. But the message on the other side for more traditionally patriotic Americans is rather challenging, is it not? Well, yeah, sure it's challenging. I I think there's a two-level approach. I mean, I think in terms of (coughs) messaging, I think number one is, you know, ultra-big corporations and ultra-wealthy people are undemocratic. I mean, I think they're they're anti-democratic, and if we want our our, our freedoms uh, we have to fight them. And if we want, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, if we want the little banker who helps people to succeed, we got to get rid of the big banker. I've always said if Jimmy Stewart were Lloyd Blankfein and he was standing on that bridge deciding whether or not to jump, he should jump, you know. But so we need to fight for the kind of little guy businessman, the little guy American, the you and me against. I, I think we have to crystallize what we're fighting against. Okay, that's number one. And number two, in terms of action, and I would also say the other missing piece is what are we fighting for? Right. So I think we have Good to point. articulate uh, more of what we think the country ought to look like. You know, retirement security, you pay into the system all your life, then you get health care and, and, and retirement income when you retire. That's only fair. That's not left or right. That's fair. We have to articulate that kind of thing. No, Social Security doesn't pay too much. It pays too little. No, Medicare, it, it, you know, and on and on. Medicare is a good system. We all like it. Why can't everybody buy into it if they want? I think we have to start being proactive as well as reactive. And then the third is, look, just... It's amazing how effective emails and phone calls to your Congress representative, to your senator, to your other elected officials are. Yeah, write them, call them, write letters to the editor, stay mobilized, give money to organizations you believe in, uh, even a few bucks just to show you support them, get out there on the street for a demonstration, whatever it takes, and fight despair. You know, so... uh, you know, that maybe you need to, if you feel strongly about these things as we do, say, okay, I'm going to give it an hour a week, whatever a reasonable amount of time seems to be, because we all have our lives to lead, but for an hour a week, this is what I'm going to do. 
Well, I think perhaps it can be done. It's starting to gel. It took a long time for the uh, War of Independence to really, really happen. And, uh, you know, you got to have a little bit of patience, that's for sure. If people are interested in, in following more of your writings, uh, is there some uh, website or blog to which you can point people? Sure. There's OurFuture.org, which is the website for the Campaign for America's Future. Great organization. And then there's rj escow E-S-K-O-W. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, talking about history, talking about the future. I guess we're talking about the same thing, about the spirit of America. Thank you very much, Richard Esco, for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. And here is uh, Mr. Jimi Hendrix to talk about the energy that may need to come again. Thank you.